0: Hello, this is World Business Report from the BBC World Service, where we bring you the latest in money, marketing, manufacturing, and yes, much, much more. Please review us, rate us, share us wherever you can. BBC podcasts are supported by advertising.
1: The Global Story, with smart takes and fresh perspectives
2: on one big news story. Every Monday to Friday from the BBC World Service. Search for The Global Story wherever you get your BBC podcasts to find out more. Hello and welcome to the World Business Report podcast from the BBC World Service. Namaste, I'm Devina Gupta. And on this edition, the US has imposed fresh sanctions on Russia almost two years on from its invasion of Ukraine. So we're going to look at the economic impact of those sanctions. We'll hear from those directly affected by the war. And we'll find out what it's like for big companies trying to do business in a war
3: zone. We've had uh, some of the bigger coal stores that destroyed destroyed in the initial invasion completely. Everybody in the whole industry has copped this sort of damage.
2: So stay with us for this special coverage. We look at the cost of the war for Ukraine, Russia and the world. We start in the northeastern city of Kharkiv in Ukraine, which has been battered by constant shelling by Russia since the start of the war two years ago. The BBC's Andrew Harting was there this morning.
0: People are weary. They are worried. Every time there is a siren, and the sirens go off here, you know, regularly, several times overnight and often during the day, people are checking to see Where's been hit? Who's been killed? And this city, like many cities closer to Russia, have emptied out to some extent, even though people have started to trickle back because, frankly, they can't afford to stay in more expensive accommodation further west, trying to find a a sort of hint of normality in what is still a very, very strange and scary place.
2: And as Andrew mentioned, many people have left Kharkiv in northeast part of Ukraine. And among them is Irina Hubaraviva, who left her family, friends and business behind as the Russian invasion started in March 2022. She is now a new life, working as a care assistant in Manchester in northern England, where I caught up with her for a coffee.
4: Most of my life was absolutely happy. I realised myself uh, like a lady, like a mom, like a business lady, like a wonderful daughter, and I understand what am I doing, what was my plan, and everything destroyed in
2: one moment. What was that time when you decided, I need to leave, I need to save my family?
4: It's very stressful for not just for me for all Ukrainian people live uh, in country when every time have a signal most of time for the day if somebody can feel um, what this when rocket broken and destroying everything around you your memory saves this and when you can hear and signal just you automatically your body and everything start panicking. My son had a choice: to leave the country, but he says, "Mom, if you're not going with me, I'm stay here. My fault. Move and try to rebuild in your life. Concentrate on different goals. It's not easy when you're 43 and uh, you haven't home." You haven't your connection, reputation, old working experience, education to university. It's not making sense here. It took ages for adapt with this and say to myself, okay, come
2: on, stop crying and do something what you can do. Amazing resilience. What were the things that you took with you when you decided to move? And was there a particular moment then you said, this is getting too much. Like, did you see, say, a rocket near your city, and then you said, "Now it's the time."
4: Uh, I got a flat and sixth floor on a building. So, if rocket coming, I just dead at home. So it's not too much. Say, this place like uh, underground. So me and mom, we live ten years in underground floor without all communication, anything. And uh, my son called me to mom. I think we need to move because how long you can stay underground. So when we had a visa, we have uh, English friends here. They proposed for sponsor family and thank you so much for this welcome family who saved my family. How has life changed from what you were doing to now? Last ten years I was self-employer and my business was about sold air conditioning and professional project for this all-air system. I studied this my experience from zero because I had my good reputation between my friends so which is find the money trust me so everything was absolutely perfect and good but most of my team was a man and now all of them in war so all my team is just destroyed. And I understand uh, if you want to control a business, you need to stay in this city. You cannot control it on a distance. So I close my business and move in England. It's uh, not an um, easy way for me here for now. Some people ask me, why are you not self-employed here? My opinion if you want to be a self-employer somewhere for me priority need experience because it will be a different tax system law system everything is different and before you start do your mistakes which is cost you money <laughs> for me need experience maybe with somewhere else and after uh, must be i open my business later
2: that was Irina. Huparieva, who is a Ukrainian refugee in the UK working as a care assistant. We'll hear more from her in a bit. But Irina's mother has decided to stay back in Ukraine and she's really worried about her. And just like her, Irina's mother, there are many more who are still in Ukraine in a conflict zone. Igor is a farmer who also refused to live, leave and he lives very close to Russia's border and spoke to us earlier this week about the challenges he faces when he continues to farm in a conflict zone.
4: Actually, my farm, we lost uh, 50% of our land under operation because of the proximity to the front lines. So we had 3,000 hectares. Now we have 1,500 hectares under operation because of the war. And uh, all the inputs are much uh, more expensive nowadays for us, even two or three times uh, more expensive. I mean, fertilizers, uh, agrochemistry, everything. Uh, we have shortages of stuff because uh, many of our
5: employees, they were drafted to the military and they fight, uh, not farm. Many obstacles. But for us, they can, cannot even imagine how hard it is to farm in Ukraine. We have no subsidies at all.
2: Igor performs a crucial role as a farmer for Ukraine's economy because of the war, there are very few revenue sources for the government there. And exports of grain, sunflower oil, and even poultry continue to pump much needed dollars into the economy. But now Ukrainian farmers are facing another big problem. European farmers, their neighbours, have been alleging that cheap Ukrainian food imports are driving prices down for them. They want to see restrictions imposed by the European Union on products brought in from Ukraine. Just this week, we saw protests by farmers in Poland and Czech Republic. And if this happens, this gap happens, this could be a big blow for agribusinesses in Ukraine. John Rich is the executive chair of the country's largest chicken producer, MHP, and told me how his business is doing in
3: Ukraine. We live day by day with missiles and drones. And so that is extremely difficult environment, not only for our employees, but also for our quarter of a million stakeholders. So, And and this causes significant business interruption, particularly when electrical infrastructure is hit, cold stores are hit or whatever. It it is a very, very difficult environment.
2: Have you had to shut down any factories at all in the past two years in Ukraine?
3: Well, yes. Uh, we, the factories that we had in the east, we had to close. It's as simple as that. You know, they, they're in the eastern areas, they're in a conflict mm. zone. There was no alternative. Uh, we've had uh, some of the bigger coal stores, those in particular in the north and part of uh, Kiev, were destroyed an uh, in initial invasion completely. The coal stores in Odessa, uh, you know, it's everybody in the whole industry has copped this sort of damage.
2: Pre-war to now... What's been the change in production from your factories and how much of a downfall you've seen as a result of those closures?
3: So yes, production did fall because of that. But today we have been able to bring production, in 2023 specifically, we have increased our production back to normal levels. Again, most of our facilities are in the West, and so that has a, we've been able to do that. Yeah,
2: and you must be finding it very difficult to even provide security for your workforce, get them to work as well?
3: Yeah, well, actually, in the, it, yes, and uh, you are correct. It is always, uh, it's, it's always a challenge. I think that the biggest issue is that uh, we have around about 10% of our employees are, uh, out of 27,000 in Ukraine are uh, mobilised. And frankly, uh, unfortunately, around about 10% of that uh, of those people have lost their lives, uh, and those people that have been demobilised then need very, very special assistance because of the dreadful injuries that are caused by mines, shells, but in particular post-traumatic stress syndrome, and we have had to allocate enormous resources to mm. help these people.
2: And that's why it might be extremely important to have big businesses like yours running and trying to keep doing business as usual in Ukraine then.
3: It is because what happens is that we're one of the largest agribusinesses in Ukraine. We contribute billions of dollars to the central bank each year, which is extremely important in stabilising the, the currency. And we're the, one of the, the largest employers in the sector without question. So yes, it is the company is very important In this whole thing,
2: we just saw these protests earlier this week in Poland and Czech Republic. Looking at these sentiments growing against Ukrainian poultry, cheap produce, crossing the border from Ukraine into their country, how has that impacted your business?
3: Well, at present, it hasn't. But the the big question is will it in the future? Right now, the uh, poultry exports out of Ukraine are pretty stable. Uh, The country can't produce any more poultry than it is. It's got a certain amount that's got to supply to the domestic economy, which is critical for food security, and the balance is exported. So all we're seeing, as I said before, is that if we are artificially capped in the future, then it's going to be less that's going to go into the European Union. and And Brazil and Thailand or whatever, they will... They will just fill the space. It's as simple as that. It's just simple market economy.
2: But could you also find new markets because your company is exporting to over seventy countries, and surely yeah, yeah, yeah. then there would be demand uh, elsewhere.
3: In essence, yes, the company will just re-export to different destinations if we are basically prevented from exporting into the EU through caps. But you know, it is what mm. it is. We, we have to live by this. I mean, to be frank, our critical. Factor is day-to-day living in country when there's missiles and drones flying over your facilities.
2: That was John Rich, who is executive chair of Ukraine's largest chicken production company, MHB. And as he said, it is what it is. As the war continues, Ukraine needs much more aid now. The U.S. is among its largest military donors and has contributed billions of dollars worth of aid already along with the EU. But even now in the U.S., a crucial bill for further $95 billion worth of aid is stuck in the U.S. House of Representatives. And as Joe Biden's administration tries to negotiate its way with the Republicans to release it, they have today sent a tougher message To Russia. The US has announced more than five hundred new sanctions, the largest by far according to Joe Biden, against Russia over its invasion of Ukraine and for the death in custody of the opposition politician Alexei Navalny. We'll get to the real impact of that on the Russian economy in just a bit. But first here's a special report from the BBC's Russia editor Steve Rosenberg about how people in Russia are reflecting on this war.
0: Well, I've walked about 10 minutes down the road towards the Kremlin, and in front of me there is a beautiful merry-go-round, a carousel with lovely wooden horses and, and people queuing up with their children to get on board. It is an image of normality, and yet just chatting to people around here, no one I've spoken to thinks the situation in Russia is normal.:. <laughs> Alexander tells me that in two years the economy's got worse and so has the general mood. Everyone's worse off in the moral sense, Yelena says. It's terrible that people are being killed, so we try not to think about it. Well, I've left Moscow now. I've driven 40 miles to the town of Solnitsynogorsk to hear what people are thinking away from the capital. Marina tells me that she's proud of Russian men who, she says, have been doing their duty on the front line. Then she looks across at her 17-year-old son, Andrei. But as a mother, she adds, I'm scared that my son will be sent off to fight. That's why I want peace as soon as possible, so that we won't have to fear what tomorrow may bring. Everyone I spoke to in Solnitskogorsk and in Moscow, said they wanted peace. But nobody believed that there was anything they could do, as individuals, as citizens of Russia, to make that happen.
2: That's the BBC's Steve Rosenberg. We're talking about the Russian economy as well. And Alexander Kolianda is an economist who has worked in Russian banks and is now based in London, is joining me now. Alexander, we were talking earlier about the recent round of the US sanctions. This is in tune with the EU sanctions that have been imposed on the Russian economy. Briefly tell us about them and their impact on the economy. Is it hurting where it should
1: uh yes Loth. thank you for having me. Uh the recent uh, the recently imposed sanctions by the US and the European Union are definitely not the first ones and yes they hit Russian economy but, as uh, on the one hand, uh, the main companies and the main businesses of the Russian economy were hit two years ago, and they were under the sanctions since two thousand and twenty two and sometimes two thousand and twenty three so if you look at the American sanctions properly you 'll see that it mo- uh, that they mostly target uh, sector, uh, s- several sectors, production of drones, uh, production of semiconductors, 3D uh, printers, and so on. So it is very targeted sanctions this time, uh, partly because that's what, uh, the war effort. Um, Demands And partly uh, because all the uh, big, uh, you know, companies, all the elephants have been already targeted and those uh, Mm. who are not targeted are very difficult to sanction because of their connections to the global business. But Alexander, just
2: today, the Russian president Vladimir Putin has promised to increase military spending. Now, where is that money going to come from?
1: Uh, Well, the money is coming effectively from two sources, one of them being uh, Russia's exports of oil and other commodities, but oil, mm, it's mostly oil. And secondly, by the mm, spending from the Russian budget. So in effect, it's uh, a composition of an oil economy and uh, the uh, spending economy, which you could find in Mm. uh, many Western countries seven, uh, you know, 70, 80 years ago. So Russia spends from its coffers and Russia also uses profits from uh, its oil.
2: Alexander, be with me because we have Natasha Epdiyaj, who is a fund manager with Global Equities at Artemis Investment Management, also with us. Natasha, this is the topic of the day, the sanctions that Russia is facing. How much is actually the West able to exploit the economic vulnerability of Russia? Alexander talked about the money coming from Oil sales. Now, just earlier this week, the EU also targeted some 200 entities from China and India, which are two of the biggest oil buyers of Russia. Now, do you think this is the turning point that you can see for the Russian economy? um, Actually, if you were looking
4: over two years, uh, you could actually conclude that the sanctions have been relatively ineffective. So while the West has put sanctions on Russian oil, they've still managed to export to China and India um, in exchange for their local currencies. And actually, these these exports have um, actually helped. And contrary to what we were expecting immediately after the war, it's helped keep uh, oil prices down, Mm. um, energy prices down globally, and actually been quite
2: disinflationary in the last uh, two years. Alexander, as we heard from Steve's report, even people in Russia are are praying for peace and there is the cost to this war that they are even paying. How do you see it ending?
1: Well, I think that um, the majority of the Russians do not feel uh, the pressure from the Western sanctions at the moment, simply because all the restrictions have been mitigated uh, by the Russian budget. And uh, I think that overall, the sanctions do work, but not the way we expected two years ago. So those who expected and those, uh, who believed that the sanctions would cause Russian economy mm. to collapse immediately, they, uh, they were simply fooling themselves. The sanctions are making Russian economy weaker okay. long term. And at, at the moment, uh, everything is goes more or less okay for an ordinary Russian.
2: Alexander Koliander, thank you so much for joining us. Economist who's worked past in the past with Russian banks. Joining us from London here with World Business Report from the BBC World Service. In 1969, a plan to show support for an anti-racism protest turned the lives of 14 promising Black student-athletes upside down.
4: I don't think we realize what the true flavor of Wyoming was back in 1969.
2: Amazing Sports Stories from the BBC World Service tells the story of the Black 14.
5: There was a rebel Confederate flag being flown.
2: It was different. It was definitely different. Search for amazing sports stories wherever you get your BBC podcasts. Natasha, be with me because another growing demand to punish Russia has been to freeze assets of Russian oligarchs in different countries and sell them to help fund the war efforts of Ukraine. But can that work? Timothy. Mel Lovanov formerly worked as the Minister of Economic Development, Trade and Agriculture in the Ukraine government. He's now the president of Kiev School of Economics. And Timothy joined me earlier to talk about this and started by talking about Ukraine's war zone economy.
5: Direct damages are about $155 billion at the moment. To compare it, to put this number in perspective, the GDP before the war, of Ukraine was $200 billion nominal GDP. So it's almost the entire GDP. After the war started, the full-scale invasion started, the economy fell by 30%. And in the last year, it adjusted a little bit. And while the final numbers are not in, there's an expectation it's maybe between 3 and 5% growth last year. So, you know, we have lost a third of the economy, really
2: talk about the freezing of Russian assets, which was a major sanctions act by supporters of Ukraine earlier in the war. Now, if you seize them and there's a demand to hand the proceeds to Ukraine before the end of the war, how much money are we talking about here? And would this be legally possible?
5: So that is in billions and tens of billions of dollars. The political argument is that it is an escalation. And uh, Russia can reciprocate by capturing assets uh, of, uh, let's say, Western companies or governments in um, Russia. There is another argument saying that it will create a precedent uh, removing state immunity and therefore there will be less trust in the financial system. Um, I I don't believe that's a real argument because um, there is a very uh, clear uh, cause and consequence chain here. Other countries are not trying to invade their neighbors and so they have nothing to fear from this precedent.
2: But again, all of these measures could have all sorts of consequences for the global economy, couldn't it? For example, countries such as China that have tense relations with the West might worry that they could still have their assets seized.
5: I think that's the real Mm. discussion, whether um, the West wants to have the infrastructure The effect of this infrastructure would be, in fact, to create additional incentives for China to be more careful in the region about strong arming other nations.
2: But, Timothy, before we let you go, you are in the U.S. right now trying to have more negotiations about aid to Ukraine and raising awareness about the war going in your country. There is a $95 billion aid package that is up for debate and uh, the House of Republicans in the U.S. need to pass this aid. What are your hopes with it?
5: Well, we, uh, this aid will be passed. Uh, the, this uh, this question is delays I think uh, Ukraine, uh, Ukraine is an ally to the United States and vice versa. And there are fundamental consequences uh, for the United States of, uh, of this aid because the credibility of the U.S. is at stake.
2: That was Timothy Milorvanov, who has formerly worked as Minister of Economic Development, Trade and Agriculture in Ukraine, speaking to me earlier. Now, if you were listening at the start of the show, you would have heard our conversation with Ukrainian businesswoman Irina, who left her life behind to start again in the northern English city of Manchester after the war began in Ukraine. And before she left the conversation, she's been telling me how she copes with her new life far away from home.
4: After time, you understand. I had my communication skills before uh, this. My self-employed. I had uh, eight years uh, was teaching university. So I like work with people, and um, I understand in this world nobody must to help you if you need the help.
2: How do you view money now? Has that changed the way you look at things, which perhaps say? Just sitting here, looking at people eating and drinking coffee, does this feel different from a different life?
4: It looks different for me maybe what I job what I had now but uh, if I look around now it looks like my life was before just offices uh, business people who talking about economic and uses planet travels so it's different level of money. But uh, if I won't get it, so need to improve English study and get it. Yeah. <laughs> Nobody present me that. You want to go back to Ukraine if given a chance? Ukrainian door still open. You can come back today. But my city have a rocket every day. So I'm not ready to come back um, to Ukraine now. I hope I can come back and... Um, Maybe I will be helpful for... Maybe with people with mental health, I can uh, use my language or economic communication, whatever. So I dream come back home, of course. So it's very difficult come back to, like, a normal life and jump and smile. Because typical for English, people ask you every second, hello, how are you? So... <laughs> This answer will be absolutely difficult
2: for Ukrainians. That's the extreme heartfelt pain of Irina, who's left her home two years ago. You've been listening to World Business Report with our team, and we've been looking at the mood of the second anniversary of Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine, which, of course, is gloomier than on the first. A lot more needs to be done, as we've been talking about more military aid From Ukraine, the EU has promised a fresh tranche along with the International Monetary Fund that will be releasing $800 million that's been promised just today for Ukraine. That's it for this edition of the World Business Report podcast with me, Devina Gupta. We'd love to hear from you about what we've been covering. You can write to us at world.business at bbc.co.uk. See you next time. Namaste.